Come on in. Come on. <laughs> Come on in. Welcome, welcome. The slow road to better. Why do we do the slow road to better? Well, we've been lucky where we can talk about it to our our friends, people here at the Stroke Comeback Center, but now then we can tell more people across the world to learn about it. What is the it that we're talking about? Aphasia. Stroke yeah. survivors. TBI people. Life moves on. Inspiration. Help listeners. That our inspiration of a bridge of hope. I love it. Trying to help each other a lifeline. Part of it also is we started doing it. It's not because we just wanted to tell everyone to see what happened to us. But also we wanted to get better talking ourselves oh, with the phaser. And we wanted to, one day, it's not going to, the is not leaving it, but we'd like to crush it a little bit. Let's listen in. Listen in. Thank you so much for being uh, here with us this morning. And thanks so much to Kitty for reaching out to Lauren in the first place and uh, getting her to come and join us on the Slow Road to Better and talk to us about her book, A Stitch of Time. Lauren Marks is a writer with aphasia. She's also an actress and a writer. She's a mom. Thank you so much for being with us this morning at 7 a.m. your time and 10 a.m. our time. Yeah, I want to hear the story of how this how this group came together to be doing podcasts and all of it. Well, so we decided to kind of do this because there's population that is not in D.C. or around there, or there is a lot of people that have basically nowhere to run. And so we just decided to start something. And if it works, it will, you know, do it or not. So they said, let's see if we can get this thing going somehow i'm not really sure uh melissa knew had a friend of hers that knew how to do something like that so we're like okay and then like let's put some more and see if we can work uh with the whole podcast and and i guess somehow it worked and so then then we uh we still that's pretty good we're still you know it's nothing crazy but we we wanted to get and actually is happening, which is great, is we want more people. That's the thing with the podcast. It's a, all, all over the world. And it's not like just stories about us. It's like, you know, like recently, the last couple of years, we've been talking with more uh, uh, aphasia people, uh, PT. Doctors, or, nurses. Doctor, yeah. Yep. So, yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's 90 chapter now. Yeah, we're up to, I, I put out episode 91 last night, Kitty. I'm actually going to take one step back because there was something in your book. I was invited to do a lecture at Marymount University, and they wanted me to come and speak to the PhD students about what a speech therapist does. I thought it was more important for people who were going out into the world as physical therapists to understand what aphasia looked like. Mm. Um, and that I thought nothing teaches you about aphasia more than meeting someone with aphasia. So I brought with me uh, Chris and Pat and two other survivors and who were members of the Stroke Comeback Center, and they told their story. Mm -hmm. And so I think the students were stunned to look at people with aphasia who look just like them. Um, people, very, people who were young, people who had awesome lives, who were highly educated, motivated, had done lots of things, and their world got turned upside down instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And in that class was a guy who ran a podcast for physical therapy. Mm -hmm. He was 
kind of instrumental in helping us figure out how to do this because you know file under things they don't teach you in grad school <laughs> how to how to produce a podcast but um we worked it out and so we've been we've been going strong for a while and it's it's um it's been a great experience for me and i think for the members you know i i have to say i i haven't said this on any podcast or interview that i'm aware of because it's never come up but I, I, uh, I actually wanted to do a, an aphasia podcast at, at some point myself. I, uh, I worked in an aphasia center in London. I lived in London for about a year, uh, four years with my husband. And uh, I just, I had, only, I, had, I was far along my, on my aphasia journey. I was no longer in the acute stages. I was there as, uh, you know, a communication support and you know, colleague to other people who shared the condition with me, but it had a great setup. And the person who was uh, in management positions, there are people in management positions who had aphasia too. So I'd never seen that kind of model before. And I was really impressed. And like you, I really wanted to be able to put out something at, uh, in two fronts. One, to people who were in rural areas, like I think Chris was saying, people who might not be able to come into an aphasia center to like hear their community, if nothing else. But the other one was to have people who, who had never experienced aphasia and didn't know anyone who had it and listen to stories, you know, um, from people who were living with it. Because I, I'm going to be totally honest. When I first got in there, I thought, before I walked through the door, I thought, oh, this is going to, this is going to be like some sort of circle and there's going to be prompts and I'm going to hate this. Uh, why am I walking through this door? And then I got there and I was just so blown away by the complexity uh, and the nuance uh, and the vulnerability and, and the strength. I mean, I mean that so sincerely. I, I was just, there were so many people who were so qualified, so thoughtful, people who had amazing jobs, who, you know, who had come to this position in a different way. And I just, there, I've never been in a place like that ever, there before or ever again, where I could just sort of settle in a different way of talking, you know, and a different way of listening, where the words you use didn't mean they had to be exact but the intent was was so clear. So yeah, I at some point I thought, I, and I've recorded a couple of them. Uh, I used some of their voices with their permission at, at some lectures uh, over the years, but I, I always wanted it to be a podcast like this. So you guys are way ahead of me. I was like, I was gonna call it the uh, the Unheard Voices Radio Hour. Uh, and this certainly never came to fruition. So I am impressed, I am jealous, and I am humbled that the people who actually got further along than me uh, have invited me to come by. Well, if you want, we do this every Tuesday at 10. Just to be <laughs> kind. The East, uh, East 10 o'clock. Yeah, here it's Yes, it, yes it East hard, Coast. It is harder from California, it's true, but uh, you know what? I don't have that group out here. So you may so, from time to what, time. What age do you have your kids? Um, my oldest is four and a half. My okay. youngest is about to turn 16 months. So, so ah. you're, you're still awake at five. Trust you me. You know what? They're, they're doing okay at... <laughs> Like they, they get up a little after six right now. So it's not that bad, but I, you know, when you have, when you've gone through an experience like being a young stroke survivor, which clearly there are several uh, of you here who have the exact same experience. Uh, I, again, for people in the aphasia center, I knew some of them had kids beforehand. I don't think I knew anyone who had kids after, although it was on the horizon, you know, for a couple of them. I, I just think about, I reflect on what it would have been if it had happened to me when I had children. And certainly it's never around, outside a realm of possibilities, but, you know, God forbid, 
knock on wood, it's not, doesn't happen again, but you know, it's, it's just a whole different thing. You know, the reason why I was able to go through this experience and write that book is because I was just at a pretty pivotal age in which you could actually stop everything. You know, I was 27. I, I mean, I wasn't like, it wasn't easy stop, you know, I had to to leave New York. I was 27. You too, Kitty. All Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Well, then, you know, me too. Yeah. So I don't know about you, if you had kids already then, but like, I, I, I just had the ability to just kind of only focus on me for a very long time. I got an interesting question and it's, it's pretty, I thought it was pretty strange in the beginning. I was, uh, I got hurt when I was in Iraq. The day I got hurt was on uh, 7707. So mm. that's my, my, my alive, my, uh, my, my, <laughs> I'm alive. So there's no reason to do the lottery anymore. <laughs> the day when you had your, uh, your alive day, that's when they, cause I was in Bethesda, Maryland. And mm. then I went to RIC in Chicago, right? Mm. So it's just pretty cool. I don't really remember that much, but I got to go on a big airplane or a, uh, something from the Air Force. The Air Force got in there. And, but that was on uh, August 23rd, right? 2007. Oh, wow. So that, and that was my birthday. <laughs> so I was like, wow. I thought it was like such a big deal because I get in the, I don't really remember pretty much getting on the airplane or <laughs> getting in there air force and doing the whole stuff but it was it was uh i was like when i read about that i was like whoa that's that's the same time when your your day you know that's amazing that there's so many people who who had this uh at you at that same kind of that year of their life or that year of the calendar you know i i recently spoke to someone in uh, a group and they were everyone was like two or three years after their injury you know, I, I felt I felt like this sort of crone. I was like, oh, it's been 13 years. <laughs> I just sounded like I was on this totally different journey, which is, you know, I always still think of it as a journey because people, I'm surprised when people with aphasia still ask me when I got better, you know, when it when it all changed. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's not all changed. It, like, it, I mean, it's really normalized. Like there is a way that I do things now. But like, it's not the ways I, I did them before. I'm glad that you're the, first, you're the first person I know who said it was, um, you know, related to, to uh, a, a, like a veteran injury. You know, was it during combat that you were injured or was yeah, it related? In Iraq, just hanging out. Just hanging out, like you do. No, <laughs> no, my, my grandfather is, um, he's a, a World War II veteran. And he, during my all my growing up years, he never talked about his injuries, but he had been, um, he was in the Air Force, he was shot down twice. And he he had sustained, like I knew he'd gone partially blind one of his eyes, but I didn't know anything about, you know, his, um, his other injuries, his invisible injuries. And he never ever talked about it until I had this, you know, and he like shared me his American Legion. you know, talking about like invisible journeys and like, he's still he's like a you know, farmer in Montana. He's not, he's not a very w- warm and um, chatty guy, but I realized that it was something that he understood we had in common suddenly. Like we both had, you know, brain injuries um, and that, and that it changed things. It changed his life. It changed my life. And we were, we had something in common that we had never had before. And I, I kind of always assumed I would reach out and meet a lot more other people who had, I mean, you could have a brain injury while you're in the armed forces without unrelated to combat, you know, you could have a stroke anywhere, but you know, the, the, the similarities are not that different, you know, being hit by something internally or internally is not, I mean, you get aphasia both ways. It's just, I, you're the first that I'm aware of who talked about that. So I really appreciate you mentioning that, Pat. Yeah, and you said in your book, uh, quote, I have test to speed software mm-hmm. uh, in your writing. Uh, would you mind to the 
editor to my test to speak or writing or listening? Mm, that's a great question, Kitty. And only someone who has thought about it clearly knows uh, what that is. Um, I, I did know people in London um, who would use Dragon software, who would speak into their devices. Um, but that just speaks to the complexity of aphasia. You know, he like speaking, reading, writing, even sometimes hearing. Um, for me, the writing was something I could do, you know, on a keyboard without having to dictate that way. But, and I've gotten faster and faster. In fact, I, the job I have now is I'm, I'm a communication director um, at a school. But um, I... I couldn't do any of this, certainly write a book or have a job like that without using text-to-speech software every single day. I, in every email I write, and if it's a complicated email, if it's a sensitive email, I probably listen to it five or six times because, you know, things are tense or I, I just, I just know that things will get that stress or tension will make my aphasia like a little more pronounced. Mm. Um, and the most common things that I'm still picking up in the text-to-speech text software, which is just when I highlight and listen to everything, which I do, I used to do it for all of my text messages as well. I don't need to do that as much as long as it's someone who I already know. If it's a stranger, I, I like, I'll, I'll highlight it all because you just get used to how people respond and if you leave a word out that's weird it's not it's not that strange <laughs> with text messages but in emails um the things that i tend to leave off is or have a a continuous um uh, issue is like the connective what i call the connective tissue of the sentence like of in at uh for those words just sort of they just disappear content words are are there you know and uh, a pheno phenomic paraphrases, um, words that sound the same but don't mean the same. I'm, I had for a long time a, a, a like a, a, lo a logging, like a, a running log of, of all the ones I used to, to say because they were so interesting. I wish I had actually pulled them up before we saw each other, but like soul and sore, um, mean and lean uh um but one sometimes multi-syllabic ones which are really different like mean really 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 different things but just have the same syllables and the same kind of vowel sound i you know and if i sent out those emails oh gosh oh no one happened recently oh my goodness um i don't i actually don't know if this was because it was late at night and it was with uh on a weekend and I don't know if I actually dictated this and it was an autocorrect or if my aphasia did it but I meant to write <laughs> I can't believe this I meant to write I was talking to someone about how to get the vaccination you know because uh, her husband was over 65 and I wrote um, God, what was the word that I was trying to say shot I was trying to say the word shot <laughs> I wrote the word or autocorrect. I don't know if it was me or, or the machine. I'm going to be clear about that. But I looked at the text later and it said the word slut. I wrote <laughs> to my boss, this is where you get the shot. And I wrote, this is where you get the slut. <laughs> I That's funny. was... That's good information. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sean, that's good information. Uh, good information. Only people, only people with their face are like, yep, I got gotcha. you. Uh, I said Tom Gravy, not the football team. Uh, <laughs> Tom A B Brady. Brady. So you you called Tom Brady Tom yeah. Gravy? Yeah. <laughs> I would do that. They, I would totally do that. That's they, had, they had that. Um, I think it was like after I got hurt, and like maybe like the first year later or two years later, and I was trying to use the. Um, they were trying to have show me how to use the uh, the dragon, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever use that. And uh, I, I just uh, like my brain were just, you just couldn't get it, you know, just, and, and then finally, when they finally, uh, in the, uh, like the I, iPhone or whatever, or the iPad or whatever, mm-hmm. you could just put it right on there and then, then it could read it and, or I could try to practice, like I'm trying to write something. And then, so then it's sort of like, I, I finally got it then, you know, but as I just remember those many years ago, you had like a, Oh shoot! What's the thing called? Like a microphone, and you have to like try to talk to it while you're trying mm-hmm. to speak, but you have like no aphasia, so you're like bugga bugga and it's just yeah. kind of looking at you. So yeah, yeah, those things are. I think they've gone leaps and bounds since then, but you know, nothing is ever feels like it's set up for people with language disorders. You know, it feels like even when it says it's accessibility. Um, you know, programming or it, 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 it's, it's hard. But the person I know who did use Dragon um, was because she had mobility issues too, like her, her typing skills, her ability to use her, her arm had never really fully recovered. So it, it, it helped her a lot to be able to um, speak into the, the machines that she had. I will say though, she she preferred the iPhone stuff too. She preferred the built-in ones as opposed to the software that you added. It, you know, it. I'm. This is not a commercial for Apple, but they they did a really good job. I have a uh, a word, and I'm trying to. I have two questions about the word. <laughs> Number mm-hmm. one is, I think it is uh, so easy to spell, but I have no idea how to say it. Hmm. C O I L E D. Collide. Say again. Collide. Or coiled. Coil. Oh, in in the brain, you mean? So, what does that mean? And then number two is, did you just do it when you were in uh, Scotland, or were you in America? Um. So, I don't know how many people had to have open brain surgery. Um, Pat, it sounds like you probably did. Is that right? It, yeah, it's a whole um, other story, but yeah. Well, but it, it's, there are two options if, if someone needs to do a neuro intervention like that. One is doing a neuro radiological procedure, um, which is called coiling. So uh, I, that was in Scotland for me. They did not open up my head. Um, I, I was never in a coma, but I was certainly in a highly medicated, like mm-hmm. feverish state for a bit of time. And when I, you know, became aware, uh, uh, you know, what was going on, I was really confused when everyone told me I had brain surgery. Cause I was like, meh, meh, nah, like <laughs> they must be wrong. Um, but you know, they had done a procedure that had gone up through the groin area and snaked all the way up through my body. Um, maybe someone or more than one people in, in this conversation has had something similar. And then when it got up into the brain, they, you know, I, I don't know if you have looked at the anatomy of aneurysms. That was clearly not what you had, but basically if it's a tight one like this, like an aneurysm is like a pothole on a street. Uh, and if it's a real tight one, you can get something like, you don't put coils up a wire, you put, I mean, up that tube in the body, you you, you put um, something that once it gets to the aneurysm, you coil it up while it's in there. And it's, you put it like a cork in a bottle of wine. Uh, it's a very effective and much less uh, invasive procedure. Um, but if you have a, an aneurysm that has a little more wider neck, it's a little harder to fully fill because blood can continue to sort of beat at the the sides. Um, And when they did my procedure in Scotland, it was a more wider neck aneurysm. They thought that was the best uh, approach then. uh, And it certainly saved my life. So I'm appreciative. But when I had my second brain surgery uh, in the United States, with due respect to my neurosurgeon, because he's he's one of the best uh, in the world, uh, probably, uh, certainly in California, um, 
he was a little dismissive of that other procedure. You know, he was like, well, if he'd come in here, they're not known for their bedside manner, neurosurgeons, by the way. Uh, yeah, if you're, so, yeah, if you're already not, there, not, you, let's, let's go forward, you know? They're not, they're, not, they're not, you know, fuzzy. They're not, you know, cuddly. It was like, well, if you came here, I would have saved your life then. You wouldn't have to have a second surgery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks. Uh, what's happening now? So at that point, they had to do a craniotomy, and they went in to, to try to clip it. Um, so the other one goes like this. You put something in, and like, like I said, cork in a bottle of wine. The other one is from the outside. You try to stop the blood flow with putting a clip over it. Obviously, people who are listening can't can't see the uh, what I'm doing with my hands, but um, it's just like, you know, like tying off a balloon. Unfortunately, they couldn't do that when they went in there anyway. So that super smart surgeon was, you know, we're all fallible. And they went in there and they, they there wasn't quite enough loose material um, to, to use. So they ended up wrapping it with, um, <laughs> I, I'm surgical glue, but I always made a joke that it was like, I was like at a paper mache aneurysm, like a wrapped with cotton and super glue. Uh, it seems to go be going well. It's been a long time now, but you know, not what not what they went in to do. Uh, and that's what I meant by coiling. And uh, yes, that was in Scotland, and the other one was uh, an open brain surgery where they were trying to clip, but um, they had to do something else. So I had a question about how much in the beginning of the book. Do you do on your own from your memory? You just seem to have a lot of memory given what happened uh, more than I had, which is one of my issues, I think. Mm. Do you write that on your own or were you given information from your friends and your parents and such or? Um, the, that's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked because I, when I was able to read more uh, neurological material, I was always looking for things about aphasia and memory. You know, I, I felt like this was a really important distinction uh, and like that they were really related to each other. But I, I didn't come across a lot of really mm, robust like uh, investigations because the brain is just so complex. I mean, and, and, you know, when you get a language disorder through like later in life, you know, and how it happens. It, sometimes it, sometimes it's not related to the language at all. You know, you know, with the ruptured brain aneurysm, it's like a floodplain. Like, what other parts of my brain are being flooded? So it's very hard, I think, to isolate. You know, what's a memory issue and what's related to the to the language part of it. But to me, it felt they were related. You know, it really did because it was like the more language I got back, the more memories I got back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's just how it felt, um, and I that's a little hard to really answer. I would say that the vast majority of the stuff about the hospital was really mine. Mm. Um, and no one wrote any other part of the book. The book was entirely written by me. Right, right. But, but being immersed with people and hearing them tell you stories that you know to be true or untrue, you absorb things. And when it talked about, when I write about other parts of my life, when before the aneurysm, like it was, it was pretty clear to remember things that had happened after. Um, but what had happened before was very hard for me. I, if someone were to tell me a story like, oh, you had a pink pony, you know, if that, if he, he roamed, he roamed Narnia. Like, I'd be like, that's stupid. That's not true. Um, but I, I, I did I, in the book. I, there was like, there was a interaction where I was trying to ask my partner, my, my boyfriend at the time, like, can you remember what our fights used to be about? Like, what did we used to say to each other? Like, I really tried, I, like I was just trying to access these important parts of our relationship. Um, and I couldn't, you know, like I needed him to help fill those things in and for reasons that are, you know, um, personal, <laughs> you know, and understandable. Like, you know, he was like, I don't wanna like rehash our fights. <laughs> I'd rather have like a, a clean slate. And I was like, well, you get a, I mean, you get to think of it that way, but I, I, I need to, to connect to these things before I care about moving forward. I did say in my like first paragraph, I said something like, um, in my memories of the Scottish hospital, the sky is always blue, but mm -hmm. that can't be completely accurate. I think I say mm -hmm. something like that. 
and that's what I mean by it. Like, uh, I do remember it all being sunny, but like Scotland is not like that. Like, no, (laughs) in the summer, it is like surprising rainstorms all the time. So like, yep. Even what I think of as pristine memories, I, I was trying to do a, a, a gentle nod to be like, you know what, even my memory of this is a little um, influenced by basically my outcome. Like I remember things being sunny right. because I was going in a certain direction and because I was feeling very connected. I mean, I, I know this is very different for different people, but sometimes people often have a major injury they get very depressed, they get very blocked, they're worried about things moving forward. And that is a very, very common and very legitimate um, way of, you know, waking up from an injury like that. But I also know other people like myself who, um, when they wake up, they feel very altered in a, in a more positive way. They feel very interconnected. Um, I know Jill Bolt Taylor has written about that in My Stroke of Insight. Um, that's something that I, I had a, a shared experience with, which was I just felt probably the most at ease as I ever had as, as an adult. Like I felt like I was part of something and I was not really like myself. As I say in the book, I, was, I felt like I was part of everything. And, you know, when you in, uh, encounter your difficulties over and over again, that kind of puts you back into some, some place of challenge or or um, struggle, but that was just not where I was in the beginning. I just didn't perceive myself as injured. I felt I was part of something um, sure. interconnected. So along the line of in the hospital and dreaming or not, did you have a dream that you are going to wake up and you or whatever it is, but you're not, you're in a coma and. Did you, I mean, did you? Did Oh yeah. You had a lot of, were you in a coma for a while? Uh, yeah, so two, two and a half months. Oh wow. But I dreamed mm. and this is what I remember. Mm. I am totally not the case now, but I was trying to help a passenger Mm. because my um, realm is fire rescue. So I was on, I was in a motorcycle Mm. and he or there are two passengers or whatever in the car and they are perfectly fine but I thought that I've saved them Mm. I don't know what but trust me I was not at all coherent or anything I think that dreams have very restorative properties after a brain injury I did not, I was never in a coma, okay. but, um, and it sounds like to me, it sounds like in your dream, you kept saving people, even though you were not really able to do that because you were actually injured yourself. Is that, is that right? Did I understand Basically, that right? Basically, yeah. 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 I don't remember dreams for a very long time. Um, I was just so, the fatigue of the weight of the injury would just sort of just take me to, 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 um, to sleep in the first, I don't know, month or so. Um, Dreams are also a lot from your type of medicine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They they may be just the heavy, heavy medication that made me unable to remember them. But um, when I did, when I did start having dreams again, they were very, very restorative. And I, I, I say, I think in the book too, that I, it was the most productive time of day when I woke up right after a dream because a flood of words would come back. Like I would put myself inside of situations in which I was remembering the language of it all. And like, I'd wake up and like, you know, I I would just write it all down, you know, the dream. And in the writing of the dream, I I was clearly like going through a kind of speech therapy. 
you know, I, I was just, I, it was a very, very productive time. And I will also say, and this is a little, I probably did not put in the book because it's, I think maybe for one little small element, but I, when you really don't have anything else to focus on, like when you, when you really uh, have this opportunity to be kind of like an, um, I don't know what to call it, like a live wire or something. Uh, I It's not unusual. I, I think I read about this. I think there's a book called like Three Dog Life by Abigail Thomas. Um, she was talking about like people who are profoundly injured sometimes seem to have like almost, I don't know if you know this word prescient, but like they seem to almost have like things that look almost like supernatural abilities to like know that what's perceived things that a lot of people don't perceive. I don't, I don't think exactly that, um, but I, 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 there, I was really a, much more in tune to a lot of things that I, I, I am now not in tune with. Like, like I could feel every earthquake, you know, no matter how, how small, now I could like sleep through this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> you know, like I, I just think that there is something that happens that in that same time where you're in this little you, you, you have dream. kids. That's what well, I know, right? What it is. No, but, <laughs> no, but that like the dream stuff, I think it's kind of connected. Like you it's it just sounds hokey. So I'm like I'm careful to say this in a in a way that is, you know, medically accurate, but that you, people do seem to be more perceptive about things that are below the surface when they are struggling i don't know let, let me let me backtrack like the babies right like babies seem to have a, an understanding of who to trust and who not to trust you know what i mean like you know like they have this sort of like open sense to them like they they have as a protective instinct in a certain way like i, I i'm very loath to make it seem like adults with aphasia or anything like a baby but they're, they're just aspects of when you are vulnerable, you are, as a protective mechanism, you are open to understanding about a lot more on the periphery um, and what's sometimes below the surface. And I don't know, that, that that seems to be, that this happened at the same time for me there. I had like a, an ability to pick up on certain things that I, I really have nothing like that now. And sometimes it would come from a dream. Like I remember having, I, I mentioned the dream in the book about like a neighbor having a special book and he was in my dream and I eventually like turns out he was uh I didn't remember him in real life but like he was across the street every day with a prayer group and I ended up you know taking a lot of comfort in that group because I didn't see other people and like and, he, and it all because he like he started in my dream and I felt like and I think my dream was like I didn't know what he was doing there I didn't know who he really was in real life but I think at my periphery I think my subconscious was like, hey, those people, like they seem helpful. <laughs> Maybe you should reach out to those people. They are helpful people. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I don't want to, like I said, make it too spooky or new agey. I just think it's um, when you're not stuck in your own hamster wheel or like, you know, the things where you look after all the trappings of your life, you really see people a lot more. I also think too that sometimes when you can't rely on words, mm -hmm. you tune into something else. Mm -hmm. So that if you can't, if what people are saying is not necessarily helpful, people tune into how you say it or mm -hmm. what your face looks like or what is your body doing. So, I mean, just if you extrapolate that out, I, I think people do tune into other things that when I don't know that we don't need it. We might all be better people if we could. Yeah. Um, but you just, you just don't. You yeah. Just... I've been, I did remember reading some journal entries and I don't, uh, I don't remember, you know, journal articles rather, but about people with aphasia often are better uh, at detecting lies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I've, I've had that, that too. Myself. Yeah. It's like, they put like political candidates in front of them uh, and they watch videos and they're like, <laughs> that guy's lying, you know, no matter how, um, you know, fluent or, you know, charming people are, it's just, yeah, it, that is like when you're, when you lose the crutch of fluent 
language with yourself and understanding fluent language. Like, I never had a problem understanding people, although I was in a weird place. I mean, like, it is weird to wake up with everybody speaking in brogues and your language is affected. You know, you're like, I feel like maybe they're saying the wrong words. Um, and that's not how you say that. Um, but it, it like, it does exactly that. Like, even though I did understand what people were saying, it was such a strain to listen to people, you know? And it was a strain even to listen to music. And I know that's not always the case. Some people have really um, very useful musical therapies for their aphasia. I think Gabby Giffords um, ha had a lot of that. But um, yeah, I, I think that that, I mean, like you, 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 you just go into different reserves. And I, I think that that sort of thing happened a lot. When, when you were in Scotland and you were in the, the hospital at like either at lunch or dinner, <laughs> when did you get the um, Guinness? <laughs> you know, I, I don't remember having any Guinness in the hospital, Pat. What? Sorry. Are you serious? I can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> Kitty, I can see your book when you hold it up and it has all these little post-it flags sticking oh, out. So I, I absolutely, I'm going to like stop the whole conversation and go, go ahead. Do you have another question? Uh, in your book, language was both my injury and the, in the brain injury and in many ways I have been writing my way back to fluidity fluidity fluency and fluency <laughs> I, I like it so much and i am writing for my book in uh, regina who is my my friends and my uh caregiver and me was uh we are writing my book for my memory mm. Mm. do you find that's true do you feel like the more you write the the easier it is to write yes yes yeah, yeah. I mean even if this book had never been published it, it is the reason I was I got I have gotten to where I am because you know it, it perpetuates itself you know being able to write and write and write and write it just makes it um, a simpler a simpler task. You're a great reader, Kitty. Thank you for. Uh, do you have way. any concerns that the the stroke is hereditary and there's some risk to your new kids? Or I, mean, I have two kids myself. They're much older than that, but it's something that always concerns me. Um, having brain aneurysms is. Uh, I know that people are still looking into the um, the genetic and heretic heredity predispositions. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly have worried about it. You know, my, my youngest son had, uh, we I had a very healthy um, pregnancy uh, and a, a very normal delivery. I did it by C-section just because of, you know, because of the pressure, the brain mm -hmm. pressure and my, my past history, but he did have a, an issue, a neurological issue. He was, um, he, he, it, we, it, we didn't know initially what it was, but um, neonatal seizures that would stop his breathing. He's very, oh, wow. he's doing really well. It was a very scary time. Even talking about it makes me like, I can see my my whole face gets downcast and I get like, like all. Um, but uh, I mention it because it does deal with one important factor because uh, I know that brain aneurysms are much more common than people think they are. That, you know, one in 50, I think, People have a brain aneurysm, but only one out of 25,000th person has a, an issue that comes from it. But so we don't really know, like, because, and but people don't do brain scans for kids. So we don't know how many kids are born with this. You know what I mean? Um, that those that statistic of one out of 50, I think it came from a, a Scandinavian study. They just basically like grabbed everybody on the street for a while until they were like, oh, wow, it's much more common than we thought we were. Because, you know, you only figure out some of these neurological issues or that, that kind of topography of your brain 
if there's a problem. So, so I know that it's more common than, than not. And I also know because unfortunately I had to have my kid in an MRI machine when he was only three days old. I know he does not have that, at least not at birth. So mm -hmm. that, again, that was not something I enjoyed uh, having to go through because the process of trying to figure out uh, an illness with a, uh, a newborn is just like, I will tell you is the worst feeling in my life. And that includes, you know, two brain surgeries. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But that being said, I'm quite healthy. And again, like I said, they, I, I just would make sure that they have a, a neurological awareness that they, that they get preemptive checks for things and uh, have a couple drug talks with them. Like if you're really going to take some drugs, here are some drugs to never take. Right. You know, that, that, you know, potentially like exacerbate, like mom is not super into you taking drugs, but if you're going to do that, here's some ones that probably won't exacerbate a, a neurological issue. Yeah. Wait till they get older and start going to college and taking drugs and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying like the, my talk will be a little more specific. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, here's the list of drugs that I don't really want you to take, but acceptable and drugs right. that you may have a, like a predisposition to die from. Mm. So these and these, the drug duck is different for people who've had strokes. Yeah. <laughs> for you, um, in your book, you talk a little bit about conversations where you felt like it was going around you. Do you still experience that at all now? And how did you deal with it then? Did you call people on it and tell them to slow down? Or did you just let it go? I don't think I very often called on people. I, I would now. I, I, I tell people, like, slow down. That doesn't make sense. Or, like, you know, turn off the radio if you're going to say that to me. Um, I know that everything has gotten easier, you know, like I, I, I flag it from time to time. Like when I have a conversation where like my kid during, you know, during our, our period of quarantine, like one kid is on the iPad, the, the TV is on and I'm still having a conversation. And I like, I have like flagged it like, oh, wow. Like, this is really different. Like I, I can do this. In the very beginning, I didn't care that much. I, I was actually happy to have people to talk to each other because uh, it gave me a break. There was another period in which I felt excluded and annoyed, partially because it'd be like inside jokes or things that I didn't think was funny or, or and, and specifically clearly thought that I was part of in on it. You know what I mean? Where, where people were talking about something and like, you like, and you know, you're like that too or something. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I, I, again, I, I, I can't downplay um, how personally changed I felt, you know, and I didn't like being um, grouped in with the woman I used to be. I didn't like people making these assumptions like they had known me in the state and I was that kind of person. Um, sometimes it was really, really challenging um, for me and, and those conversations just would trigger that a little bit like, you know, the time you got so drunk and did, you know, what unsavory or what crazy thing and I was just like, I don't know what that girl was up to. That seems like a bad choice, you know? <laughs> And, and, and I know that I'm talking about that in the third person. And just so you know, before I, very, very late in this process of writing the book, after it had already found a, a publisher, I was still writing in first person and third person. First person saying I uh, for the person after the brain aneurysms rupture and she for everything else before. Because for a very long time, I was not willing to say that these were, I know we were in the same body. I know that it, like, it is me. I can now access my memories pre-aneurysm way easier. So I, I felt at some point comfortable enough to say, okay, that's all me. All you right. Know, so I'm different, I, I but will, it's all me. I will tell you, I think everyone has that image or not image, but like drunken, <laughs> 
everyone has it, okay? No, but I was really like, I don't like that. Who is this person? And like, who's a person who would have made that kind of joke? That's not funny. Like, that's not, that's cruel. Like that, that, like there was just a lot of things I could not understand. Like, why would I stay with a certain partner? Like, why was that? You know, I, I really would look at my life with a lot of distance. So do you celebrate your original birthday or your new recovery birthday like you talked about in the book? As a mom in quarantine, I feel like I don't celebrate any birthday. <laughs> I, turned, I turned 40 this year. Uh, maybe maybe my second birthday, maybe my, my you know, my brain anniversary will, uh, will be the one I actually, because it'll be in August, maybe everyone will be vaccinated and like we can actually hug each other. Uh, but no, um, it was a very important thing to me for a, a long while. And now both in the job I have and the, and being a mom, but I, it, it, it was a very formative feeling that these were both important birthdays. At this point, um, the story is not about me right now. Got it, makes sense. Got it. Thank you. All right, and so this is how we wrap up all of our podcasts. So Lauren, thank you. Thank you for your time. This is an awesome book. I think every speech therapist should read this. Um, Keep telling your friends. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I really enjoyed it from a speechy word perspective. I loved having someone with aphasia be able to explain to me what it's like to be in their head. I learned a lot. I think a lot of people assume that everybody wants to be who they were, right? Mm-hmm. So just to hear somebody be like, no, I'm done with that. This is this is where I want to be and this is who I am. And I don't know who that chick was, but I'm done with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And the whole concept of your inner voice and inner speech, I just always think is really cool. So anyway, thank you so much for your time and your insight. And I think we are going to wrap it up on this episode of The Slow Road. Our lawyers made us say this. Disclaimers. What about disclaimers? Your opinion, the group opinion is not valid. Well, it is, but it's it's valid, but I'm having a disclaimer so that we don't get in trouble. Yes. Doctors. Doctors. Who's doctor? Theirs. Um, they. They. Their doctor. Yes. All right. Yes. So if people hear something on this podcast, you should ask your doctor. Doctor. Amen. <laughs>